Claire. I'm Kelly. And I'm Brandy. And you are listening to the infamous podcast, Bitch, I'm Not Well, where we discuss bitches who are truly unwell. unwell. doing well today i am because i'm with you yay you make me happy my favorite thing to hear kelly and murder what more could i ask for i know two for one heck yeah today's a two for one really yes oh my god like two killers two bitches that are unwell in one story well not two bitches that are unwell just two incidents (laughs) oh now you really have my interest peaked Focus is on Mary Ann Cotton, who is often referred to as the first female serial killer of Britain. The first one caught? Yeah. No, they were all caught. Oh, okay. She was just the first one that was, like, recognized with the title. I think she just, yeah, she's like the Rocky Balboa of it. Wow. Yeah. Mary Ann killed 11 of her 13 children, five stepchildren, three husbands, one lover, one soon-to-be sister-in-law, and her mother. Wow. Wowzers. She was busy. Not only was she busy spitting them out, she was busy burying them. Girl, she spit them out like left and right. It's like you look at her and she's pregnant. Yeah. So she was only convicted and executed for poisoning her stepson. 18 people. Yeah. Her motive, well, she probably killed more than that. That's just the ones that they know yeah, for sure that's she the did. One, well, that's the ones that are suspicious. Oh, um, her motive was making that cheddar from their life insurance policies. Yeah. Well, I mean, she didn't want to work. This yeah. was work. Cotton was shrewd in her crimes. She cleverly used arsenic, known as inheritance powder, <laughs> which mimicked the symptoms of gastric fever. Before the 1830s, arsenic poisoning was largely undetectable until chemist James Marsh developed a test to detect it. Thank you, James. Good job, James. Good job. So this is off the path, but still related. So this is where you're getting a twofer. Okay. Okay. In 1858, more than 200 people were accidentally poisoned in Bradford, England by a local street vendor named William Hardiker. Huh called Humbug Billy. And I'm just going to call him HB. So HB made sweet lozenges called peppermint humbugs. And this event is known as the Bradford Sweet Poisoning Incident. So he poisoned people with candy. Yes. Was he grumpy? Humbug seems like a grumpy name. Unbeknownst to him. Okay. Okay. So HB purchased the lozenges from a guy named Joseph Neal. Neil actually made the lozenges out of gum and sugar, but back then sugar was very expensive. So Neil would substitute the powdered gypsum known as DAF for some of the required sugar. On October 30th, 1858, Neil sent one of his lodgers, James Archer, to pick up a container of DAF from a local pharmacy. The usual pharmacist was ill that day, so an assistant, William Goddard, was helping Archer. 
The assistant contacted the pharmacist to ask where the DAF was and was told that it was in a cask in a corner of the attic. So their attics back then were just like kind of an additional storage place. They were like usually the ladder was in the main shop and they just climb up the ladder and go get whatever they were looking for. Okay. The assistant actually, the assistant <laughs> accidentally grabbed the 12 pound cask of arsenic what? instead of the DAF. It was not labeled. I don't know. It's like in a line. We have no, sugar I guess right it, here. We have DAF right yeah, here. Yeah, I guess it wasn't. Here. Yeah, I don't oh know. Oh my gosh. Although Neil's employed sweet maker named James Appleton never noticed a difference when making the lozenges, he did notice that the finished product looked different. Appleton suffered symptoms while making the sweets and was ill for several days later with vomiting and pain in his hands and arms, but never realized it was caused by poison. I mean, you don't expect to get poisoned by performances. Well, no. (laughs) (laughs) Or by making sweets. Yeah. So 40 pounds of lozenges were sold to HB. HB ate one of the lozenges, as he usually did, to taste them before selling them, and also fell ill shortly after. Not thinking that the lozenges could be poisonous, he sold five pounds from his market stall that night, resulting in over 200 people becoming severely ill and 21 people dying from arsenic poisoning within one day. Oh, my God. That's crazy. That's a lot. Five pounds is a lot. That's a lot of the lozenges, yes, because they don't weigh very much, you know. So the first two deaths were children, and it was thought that they had cholera. However, the growing number of casualties soon showed that it was the lozenges causing this horrifically tragic event. Ultimately, Charles Hodgson, the pharmacist, William Goddard, the pharmacist assistant, and Joseph Neal, the sweetmaker, stood before the magistrates in the courthouse in Bradford on charges for manslaughter. It was estimated that 14 to 15 grams of arsenic were in each humbug. And nine grains are considered to be a lethal dose. Oh, shoot. So each little lozenge had enough to kill two people. I would have died. I would have sat there and ate them all. (laughs) You you would be dead for sure. I can't eat just one. It's like Lay's chips. You can't eat just one. Yeah. The prosecution against William Goddard and Joseph Neal was later withdrawn. And Charles Hodgson was acquitted when the case was considered at York Assizes. <laughs> assizes? At York Assizes. Assizes? At York Assizes on December 21st, 1858. The tragedy was a major contributing factor to the Pharmacy Act of 1868, which recognized the chemist and druggist as the custodian and seller of named poisons. That's what medicine was like formally known as as a poison. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> And also resulted in W.E. Gladstone's Ministry of 1868 through 1864 legislation regulating the adulteration of foodstuffs as a result of the events. I don't know about you, but I kind of wish medicine was still called poisons. Me too. I might start referring it to that. Like, Chris, can you please pick up my poisons while you're in town? (laughs) My medicinal poisons. And grab a side of arsenic while you're out. Mm -hmm. So history-wise... Arsenic was being mined in 3000 B.C. Cool. That's before Christ. Wow, that's really old. To make bronze. However, the adverse health effects led it to being abandoned. Arsenic has been used for over 2,400 years as traditional Chinese medicine to cure syphilis before penicillin was introduced. Arsenic was also ingredient in many tonics and other patent medicines. Wow. 
<laughs> During the Elizabethan era, some women used a mixture of vinegar, chalk, and arsenic to whiten their skin, preventing aging and creasing of the skin. I remember this. Back then, being pale and very pale skin was popular. Right? You were beautiful if you had very pale skin. During the Victorian era, people came into contact with the poison on a daily basis. Arsenic was used in children's toys, wallpaper, even baby carriages. Oh my gosh. Yeah. In 1889, in the U.S. newspapers, they advertised arsenic complexion wafers. What? That promised to remove facial blemishes such as moles and pimples. Oh my gosh. Here's the ad. Like, I can actually see the ad. It says, a woman's face is her fortune. Wow. That woman is really scary in the picture. Yeah. Well, I guess this is the before. the before. And then this is the after. Even her necklace looks nicer afterwards. <laughs> right? It's all put together. It says, Dr. Sims Arsenic Complexion Wafers. After a few days, use will permanently remove all blotches, moles, pimples, and freckles, producing the entrancingly beautiful complexion that shames the use of powders and creams. Dr. Sims <laughs> safe periodical wafers are sure and reliable for all female irregularities. Price $2 per box. Warranted to contain no tansy or pennyroyal. Hmm. Don't know what those two items are. They're but poison. Pennyroyal, I think, is an herb, and you could they would use it for abortions. Oh, yikes. Okay. Yeah. So. But... It would also it could also kill the mother. Oh, yeah. damn! So, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, we don't want a penny royal. You know, in the 1800s, they also used cocaine as a medicine. Really? Yeah, Queen Victoria used to snort cocaine as medicinal purposes for only? medicinal purposes only. They figured out later on that that's not a good way to deal with <sighs> pains and injuries and anxiety. No way. Mm -mm. So I looked up the effects of arsenic poisoning. And if I ever get, you know, if somebody ever dies in my house, I'm going to be in so much trouble because all my Google searches are really sick. They're really bad. So I kind of want to look at your Google searches. <laughs> well, that's everything that we've talked about, you know, but I really wanted to look at the effects of arsenic poisoning and how... How to get away with it? No. Bitch, you were unwell. <laughs> no. Just to see if you consume it, what happens. Okay. You want to make sure you're not being poisoned. Absolutely, because I sometimes doubt Jeremy, okay? All right. Flip-flop. Flip-flop. Coming for you, flip-flop. Sometimes flip -flop. he's out of control. <laughs> so I looked up those effects, and it seems like a brutal way to die. Over a short period of time and heavy doses, arsenic causes symptoms familiar to food poisoning, mm. like severe abdominal cramping, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and mm -mm. bloody diarrhea. Eventually, there is so much fluid loss that the person goes into shock, causing insufficient blood flow to the organs, which then causes the organs to start shutting down. Then the person experiences changes in heart rhythms, confusion, seizures, brain swelling, heart failure, or coma, and then death. Wow, that's really bad. That's a really bad way to die. So let's start this horror show about this money-hungry crazy bitch. Oh, I'm ready. You ready? Yes. Lead me in with her golden Cadillac. Okay, so Mary Ann Robson was born on Halloween. Oh, very fitting. October 31st, 1832 in almost County... Almost her birthday. Yes, it almost is. In County Durham, England to Margaret Nee Lonsdale and Michael Robson. Michael was a colliery sinker. What's that? It is a person who specialized in creating... Uh, like new vertical mine shafts. 
The job was highly skilled. The workers who did this work were often regarded as like an elite workforce. Oh, I bet that's kind of like a Navy SEAL, but a mine worker. That's scary. I'm very claustrophobic, so I would not like that job, but I bet it is hard to find somebody that could do it and not like get buried alive or hit something they're not supposed to hit. Precisely. (laughs) Kind of like call this number before you dig. Before mm-hmm. they had this number. Oh, before you dig. <laughs> I don't think they had that available that then. But. I don't think so. <laughs> In 1834, Marianne's sister Margaret died at only a few months old. The Robson family moved to the village of Merton in Durham when Marianne was eight. But tragedy soon followed when her father fell 150 feet down a mine shaft oh my and died in February of 1842. Wow. Marianne would have been nine at the time. They don't think she pushed him, do they? No. Okay. No. That's Children a, were not allowed in the mine. <laughs> that's a really bad way to die. I mean, it's how horrible. long do you think it took to hit the bottom? Like, you know you're falling. 150 feet? You know for a while that you're falling. Yeah. Ugh. Hopefully you black out. Yeah. I don't know. Okay, so her father's body was delivered to her mother in a sack. Oh, that's lovely. Bearing the stamp, property of the South Hedden Coal Company. Did she have to sign for it upon receipt? I don't know. Was it cash on delivery? Cash on delivery. No, they (laughs) they didn't give her any cash, that's for sure. So this is, I mean, it's truly indicative of the harsh nature of the time, right? Yeah, that's, my gosh. I couldn't imagine. I'd probably go batshit crazy on somebody if they brought my husband to me in a sack. In a sack. That said property of anything. Yeah, because you know that, like, falling 150 feet. It's not pretty. Just another bag of bones. It's not going to be an open casket Mm-mm. or an Ugh. open sack. That's the property of the coal company. Mm-mm. So the cottage that they lived in was also tied to Michael's job. So it's likely that the family would have been evicted. Man, there's some cold that, people back then. That's messed up. Hey, look, we just your husband just died working for us. Mm-hmm. Get the heck out. Get the heck out of Dodge. So in 1843, her mother married another miner. George Stott as a means of keeping a roof over their family's heads. I was just about to ask you, is it so they got to stay in the house? Well, they did because she got remarried. So Marianne left home at 16 to train as a nurse at the nearby village of South Hetton in the home of Edward Potter, who was also a manager at the Merton Colliery. But she returned to her stepfather's home after three years and started training as a dressmaker. It's a really big change in professions. Yeah, nursing to dressmaker. Both deal with needles. <laughs> I couldn't do either one. Nursing, I pass out when I see blood. Yeah. Dressmaker, I'm not patient enough. No, I'm not either. In 1852, 20-year-old Marianne married William Mowbray, a colliery work. That's a hard word to say. A colliery laborer. And they soon moved to southwest England, where her killing spree began. So it begins. And so it The history collection mentions that Marianne and William may have had nine children in total, and all but three were dead before 1864. Oh my gosh, there's no way. Mm -hmm. I'd be insane. Like, I'd go crazy. I couldn't imagine losing a baby. Mm -hmm. They're not sure how many children and deaths that there actually were because there was such a lack of documentation, such as birth and death certificates. Registration was not really enforced until 1874. And I know a lot of times if they had miscarriages, it wasn't wasn't really documented. documented. And then sometimes if they had girls, they didn't document it if they died early because girls couldn't inherit anything. Only the boys could. So 
women were really irrelevant. Yes. William and Marianne moved back to Northeast England in 1856, where William worked as a fireman aboard a steam vessel sailing out of Sunderland. Another dangerous job. Right. Then as a colliery foreman. I kind of feel like they didn't have anything but dangerous jobs. Back then. <laughs> yeah. Good luck, guys. Every man for himself. Another daughter, Isabella, was born in 1858, and Margaret Jane died at four years old in 1860. Mm -hmm. Another daughter, also named Margaret Jane, was born in 1861. And a son, John Robert William, was born in 1863, but died the next year, less than a year old, from gastric fever. So the first Margaret Jane died of gastric fever as well. Okay. So. Lots of gastric fever going around this household. Must be contagious. Mm Mm-hmm. At some point, William purchased life insurance on himself and three of the remaining children, as several of their children died of gastric fever, a common ailment, but similar symptoms to arsenic poisoning. Imagine that. I mean, this is a slow, painful death. How can you sit there and watch your kids suffer? That I don't know. This bitch, I don't like her. I don't like her either, because you know, they had nine kids, three were alive, they all pretty much died of gastric fever. So okay. more than half of her kids she killed. All of them, actually. So hang on. Oh, gosh. I hope she was hung, drawn, and quartered. Just no, saying. unfortunately, she... Well, she died a pretty brutal death. So. Oh, okay. Hang on. It gets fun at the end. Can't wait. Okay, so William died in January of 1865, and John Robert William died shortly thereafter. Did they die of gastric fever? Yes, they did. How is this not throwing up any red flags to their neighbors? I don't know. I mean, I guess there was a lot of cholera and gastric fever and stuff going around at that time, but who really knows? And a lot of these kids, their births weren't even recorded, so nobody really knew that their de- their deaths weren't recorded either. So, huh. you know. We don't even know these kids existed. Yeah, exactly. So Marianne was 32 at this time. The lives of William and their children were insured by British and Prudential Insurance, and Mary Ann collected a payout of 35 pounds on William's death, equivalent now to 3,560 pounds in 2021, Hmm. about half a year's wages for a manual laborer at the time, and two pounds and five shillings for John Robert William, which was her son. Okay. Okay. So she had been married for like 12 years at this time? 13. 13 years? Mm -hmm. Dang it. She was pregnant for almost the whole time. Almost the whole time, yeah. Soon after Mowbray's death, Marianne moved to Seaham Harbor in County Durham, same county, where she struck up a relationship with Joseph Natras. During this time, her three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, the second Margaret, Margaret Jane, died of typhus fever, which also has similar symptoms of arsenic leaving her one child of up to nine. So out of all of her kids from her first marriage, she's down to one? One kid. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. This one must have been her favorite. Maybe. We don't know. (laughs) She returned to Sunderland and began working as a nurse at the Sunderland Infirmary, House of Recovery for the Cure of Contagious Fever Dispensary and Humane Society. Wow, that's a mouthful. (laughs) And she sent her surviving child, Isabella, to live with her mother. I wonder how many people she killed here. I was just thinking that, like assisted suicide or this patient peed on me, so bye. Bye, you're getting a little bit of arsenic in your food tonight. One of her patients was an engineer named George Ward. They married at St. Peter's Church, Monkwearmouth. Wow, that's a mouthful. (laughs) 
There's a lot of warehouse. <laughs> On August 28th, 1865. Mind you, her husband of 13 years died seven months earlier, and she's already marrying oh my gosh. this other man who is sickly. Ward continued to suffer ill health and died on October the 20th, 1866. I can't believe he made a whole freaking year. He must have been like really good immune system. And she's like up in that arsenic. Like (laughs) you are going to die. What is taking you so long? I know. Did she have a life insurance on this husband too? Yes. Absolutely. (laughs) Like I know now it's really hard Mm -hmm. to get life insurance if you're already sick. Yeah. She had life insurance. I guess back then that was... Yeah, they void. If you can afford it, we will give it to you. Mm-hmm. The cause of death recorded on his death certificate was English cholera and typhoid. Huh. Hmm. I wonder how many deaths back then were put down to nor- normal illnesses and causes, and they were actually murder. Yeah, definitely. Because I know back then they had a lot of arsenic poisoning. In fact, they had like an arsenic uh, law put in place eventually. Man. So the attending doctor later gave evidence that Ward had been very sick, yet he had been surprised that his death was so sudden. And once again, Marianne collected insurance money in respect of her husband's death. So now we're on to paying out that cheddar girl. Mm -hmm. Now we're on to husband number three. Oh. James Robinson. Come on down. Oh, James. You're the next runner up on The Price is Right. You're not going to win. The Price is Wrong, Bob. Price was right for her. (laughs) So James was a shipwright at Pallion in Sunderland, whose wife Hannah had recently died. He hired Marianne as a housekeeper in November 1866. Just one month later, James's baby John died of drumroll gastric fever. Oh my gosh. He turned to his housekeeper for comfort and she became pregnant. You think she had the skimpy housemaid? I don't know what the hell she had. She wasn't a stripper, though, if that's your question. It kind of was. <laughs> I know. It Do was. you think she was swinging around their bed no. poles? Nope. Okay. No. Never mind. So at this time, Mary Ann's mother, living in Seaham Harbor, County Durham, became ill with hepatitis. So Mary Ann immediately went to see her. Mm-mm. Stay away, Mary Ann. <laughs> Although the mother began to recover, she also began to complain of stomach pains. What the hell is wrong with this woman? She died at age 54 in the spring of 1867, nine days after Mary Ann's arrival. So she ran a marathon. The day mm-hmm. before Marianne got there, and then she died mm-hmm. a few days later. Correct. That is not suspicious at all. It yeah. was definitely natural causes. I do not know if there was any insurance collected on that. Mm-hmm. So, Heard the poor kid that was staying with that mom. Now you get to go back with your mama. That's right. You Marianne's die. daughter, Isabella, around nine years old at this time, was brought back to the Robinson house and soon developed severe stomach pains and died. She almost escaped. Almost. Poor baby. Poor baby. As did two more of Robinson's children, Elizabeth and James. All three children were buried in the last week of April and first week of May in 1867. Oh my gosh. Marianne received a life insurance payment of five pounds and ten shillings and a sixpence for Isabella. Oh my gosh. How, I couldn't imagine three children in a week. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So, I guess not suspecting anything, Robinson married Marianne at St. Michael's 
Bishop Wormouth. Don't do it. Turn around and run. Run, Forrest. On the 11th of August, 1867. Marianne was 34 at this time. Oh my God. She's had three husbands in two years? Yes. God, this bitch is busy. Their first child, Margaret Isabella, Mary Isabella on her baptismal record, (laughs) was born that November. But she became ill and died at six months old in February of 1868. So she's not original with her children's names. Let's just just stick with Margaret and John. Keep repeating it. That way when I fuss at you, I know I'm going to get it right. You all have the same name. (laughs) Christ. So their second child, George, was born on the 18th of June, 1869. George was one of the rare few of Cotton's children that would survive her. He must have been, he was born with an immune system I'm that was like Herculean. I'm not a quitter, but I keep on surviving. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the words. Okay. <laughs> Sounded good. <laughs> In that same year that George was born, Robinson had become suspicious of his wife's insistence that he insure his wife. Finally. Hallelujah. Good job, Robinson. He discovered that she had run up debts of 60 pounds behind his back and had stolen more than 50 pounds that she had been expected to put in the bank. Ooh, girl. She in trouble. Mm-hmm. Flip-flop would be mad. He would be. You <laughs> hearing him coming down the hallway. Then he found that Marianne had been forcing his older children to pawn household valuables. He threw her out, retaining custody of their son, George, and the two never divorced. Oh, but he survived her. He survived her. Oh, yeah. He kicked her ass out. Good job, Robinson. Good job keeping that baby. That's right. Yes. That's probably why he survived her. Yes, thankfully. So now I move to husband number four. Dang, this bitch is busy. Frederick Cotton. Marianne was desperate and living on the streets until her friend Margaret Cotton introduced her to her brother, Frederick. Frederick was a pit man and recent widower living in Walbottle. I really North- like the names of these <laughs> Walbottle, Northumberland. I like the names, too. I do. They're very original. I know. I love them. Who had lost two of his four children. Mm-hmm. Frederick's sister acted as a substitute mother for the remaining children, Frederick Jr. and Charles. But in late March of 1870... She died from an undetermined stomach ailment, leaving Marianne to console the grieving Frederick Sr. Oh, God. Even her friends can't make it out alive. Gosh. Right. Well, she had to get rid of her so she could become the mother, you know? True. Soon, her 12th pregnancy was underway, and Cotton and Marianne were bigamously married on September the 17th of 1870. Marianne was 38 at this time. Oh. So, remember, they never, she never did get a divorce I mean, even in... So she's bigamous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So even in today's time, 38 is high risk to be pregnant and having a baby. Yeah, but back then... Back then it had to be really dangerous. They're like, what are you thinking? Which, I mean, Was being around her deliveries? is dangerous. I don't know. That would be good to know. This one probably just walked out. She's used to it by this time. She's like, hey, look, I'm going to go on my lunch break. I'll be back with me and my baby. I know what's happening. She probably just like squatted in the street. I can do this there with my go. eyes closed. I am a freaking professional. Oops, just had a baby. I okay. also can dig a grave and bury them with my eyes closed. I'm a professional at that too. <laughs> probably. Not something you should brag about, Marianne. No. But I'm pretty no. sure you were a professional. And a bigamist. Continue. Continue. <laughs> okay. So soon after, 
Marianne learned that her former lover, Joseph Natras, remember that's who she saw like way in the beginning of the story, was now living 30 miles away in the county of Durham, village of West Auckland, and was no longer married. <gasps> hey! <laughs> She rekindled the romance and persuaded him to move his family closer to be near her. And yep, you guessed it, Cotton died in December of 1871 from chickenpox. No. Gastric fever. You're a winner. Bring it on down, mattress. I mean, mattress. 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 Mattress, mattress, whatever. Same thing. (laughs) Of course, she profited from his insurance policy. God, no. She couldn't have been using the same insurance company. They would be throwing up flags by now and being like, look, we've been paying this girl for like 20 deaths. Yeah. How are you the beneficiary on everybody's policy? Your neighbor seven doors down died and you're the beneficiary. That's right. How did that happen? I'm just a really liked person. Yeah. Nobody likes you. Mm -mm. Except for men. I don't know. I think she was a very attractive woman, but not on the inside. Mm -mm. She was rotten. So, Natra soon became Marianne's lodger, and she gained employment as a nurse to an excise officer, Richard Quickman. <laughs> that is a I, great name. I knew you'd have something. Come on, little Quickman. Hey, quick Don't man. worry, there's be a second. He's like a one-pump chump. It's good. We only have a second, Quickman. <laughs> I'm quick. It's fine. <laughs> Richard was recovering from smallpox. Thank you. Next. He soon became Marianne Cotton's lover, and she became pregnant by him with her 13th child. That's a lot. I loved being pregnant, but three was my max. I didn't. I was sick the entire time. Mm. It was my best time ever. So Frederick Jr., which was Marianne's stepson with Frederick Cotton, remember, died in March of 1872 of chickenpox. No, I'm just kidding. Arsenic poisoning. Gastric fever. fever. Gastric fever. And the infant, Robert, which was Frederick and Marianne's son, her biological son, died soon after. Oh, my gosh. Do you think she was getting, like, a discount at the cemeteries? Like a two-for-one deal? I don't know, because you do have to pay for that. Yeah. Seemed like the insurance you collected. Well, I guess. (laughs) She wouldn't need the insurance for that. So then Natris himself became ill with gastric fever. And died just after revising his will in Marianne's favor. Imagine that. How is nobody saying nobody. anything? Nobody notices that she's nobody. murdered half a freaking town. I don't know, but this woman. Oh, Everybody was probably like, oh my God, she's so unlucky. Poor thing. This bitch is unwell. She is Do you unwell. hear me? Well, She just has such bad luck. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Let's go eat dinner at her house. Mm-mm. Don't. Do it. Don't do it. So now we have Richard Quickman, Marianne's lover. Her last stepchild, Charles Cotton. And her 13th baby growing in her womb. (laughs) Marianne is 40 years old at this time. She took out an insurance policy on her stepson, Charles, of course, as his life hung in the balance. Marianne's downfall came when a parish official, Thomas Riley, asked her to help nurse a woman who is ill with smallpox. Finally, somebody caught on to her shit. Well, I don't know if... Yeah, he will catch on. Okay, good job. Let's go. So, Marianne complained about the last surviving cotton boy, Charles Edward. She said he was preventing her from getting married to Quick Man. Um... Causing the relationship to be slow with the Quick Man. (laughs) He just... 
just want to get in and out. He does not want to He's marry a quit you. Man. He is a quick man. He is a hit it and quit it type of person. <laughs> so she asked Riley if he could commit Charles to a workhouse. Oh my gosh, I can't kill him. I've been trying for years. Can you please go and I don't know that she lock tried him with up. Charles. So she was just wanting to get him committed. <laughs> I don't want to kill you. Yeah. I just want you committed. So Riley added that she told him that the boy was sickly and added, I won't be troubled long. He'll go like the rest of the cottons. Wow. She basically is telling herself she's killed so many people by now. She doesn't think she's ever going to get caught. Mm-mm. Oh, well, I mean, my God, how many people has she killed oh, This woman's making me pissed. I know. So five days later, Marianne told Riley that the boy had died. Riley went to the village police and convinced the doctor to delay writing a death certificate until the circumstances could be investigated. He was on to her. Mm-hmm. Marianne's first visit after Charles's death was not to the doctor, oh. but to the insurance office. What? There she discovered that no money would be paid out until a death certificate was issued. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And an inquest was held, and the jury returned a verdict of natural causes, though. What? Marianne claimed to have used arrowroot to relieve his illness and said Riley had made those accusations against her because she had rejected his advances. Mm-mm-mm. Probably the opposite way around. Because you are so wanted, lady. He rejected your chicken noodle soup. Don't ever reject chicken noodle soup. I know yours was really good. It was really good. It really was. Just had a little lace of arsenic. Not much. Not much. sweeter. My stomach feels fine. We're good. I'm probably immune to it. Let's go. You'll get a little cramp later. Ah, shit. Let me know. All right. (laughs) Then the local newspapers latched onto the story and discovered Marianne had moved around northern England and lost three husbands, a lover, a friend, her mother, and 11 children, all whom died of stomach fevers. Give me a break. How did it take y'all this long? Y'all are the worst reporters ever. No, honestly, it was the reporters that discovered all this. It wasn't the police officers. Well, I guess she didn't have any friends and family to tell on her because she killed them all. That's right. She must have used a bunch of different insurance companies. Surely that would have raised some red flags. How many were there back then? I Mm. don't know. Maybe different offices. Maybe she was splitting it with an insurance representative. I'll do the dirty work. You get 20%. I get 80%. Perhaps. Maybe so. So, rumor gave rise to suspicion, finally, and scientific investigation. So, Dr. William Byers Kilburn, that's a mouthful. That is a mouthful. Who had attended Charles, so he was Charles's doctor, had kept samples in test, and they showed that the samples contained arsenic. He told the police who arrested Marianne, and they exhumed Charles's body. Just his body? Yes. Mm, girl, yeah, I know. must be caught. So, she was charged with Charles's murder, although the trial was delayed until after the delivery of her 13th and final child in Durham Gowl on January the 7th, 1873, whom she named, oh, you guessed it, Margaret Mary. Margaret Edith Quick Manning Cotton. Why that did she keep, is a mouthful. Why would she keep her cotton name, though? I guess because they never divorced, so... Oh, I was just about to ask what number he was. So, he was the one that she was, was still third. actually married to. The Quick to. Manning was fourth. I know before they had paternity test, if you were married, it was assumed that the child was yours. Even if y'all like weren't sleeping together. Hmm. Well, well, well. So you had a child and you didn't get any pleasure from it. You just yeah. got the child support. So from Quick Manning, she had the baby. The baby. 
and the trial was postponed until afterwards. So Marianne's trial began at Durham Assizes. <laughs> I don't know if that's correct, but I just like to say it. I like when you say it that way. It could be Assizes. I think it's Assizes. 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 Durham Assizes on March the 5th, 1873. The delay was caused by a problem in the selection of prosecution counsel. A Mr. Aspinwall was the first considered, but the Attorney General, Sir John Duke Coleridge, whose decision it was, chose his friend and protege, Charles Russell. He was like, this bitch going to kill you. You ain't going to run against mm-hmm. me for the next election. Mm-hmm. He, gonna, he is going to prosecute you. Mm-hmm. This is his address if you want to send him food. That's right. So Russell's appointment over Aspinwall led to a question of the House of Commons. However, it was accepted, and Russell conducted the prosecution. The Cotton case was the first of several famous poisoning cases he would be involved in during his career, including those of Adelaide Bartlett and Florence Maybrick. So it was all women? There was no men arsenic poisoning people? No, I think women were the most vicious bitches back then. And they couldn't do anything else, so they were going to take it into their own hands. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I got to discuss in one. I got to do a podcast about the the lady that sold arson in her perfume. Like she disguised it as perfume. What? And I think she was responsible for over two hundred, three hundred deaths. Oh yeah, you have to cover this one. I've never heard of that. Oh, it's good. Oh gosh. So the defense case was handled by Thomas Campbell Foster who agreed during the trial that Charles had died from inhaling arsenic used as a dye in the green wallpaper of the cotton home. For real. Mm-mm. For real. The doctor testified that there was no other powder on the same shelf in the chemist shop as the arsenic, only liquid. But the chemist himself claimed that there were other powders. And Campbell Foster argued that it was possible that the chemist had mistakenly used arsenic powder instead of bismuth powder which was used to treat diarrhea. <laughs> so one treats it and one causes it? Yeah, right? Yeah, don't keep so those side So the by chemist side. confused it when preparing the bottle for cotton it because was, he had been distracted by talking to other people. It was definitely not my client. Mm-hmm. She is above par. Yeah, she She's, definitely ordered the arsenic. She is so beautiful that this pharmacist was distracted by her beauty and mm-hmm. gave her the wrong thing. Yeah, he gave her bismuth. This poor, unfortunate woman. Or he thought he was giving her bismuth. But he gave her the arsenic because she asked for bismuth. No, that bitch asked for arsenic. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the jury retired for 90 minutes before returning a guilty verdict. Hooray! They must have stopped for lunch because that's way too long. That is too long. Good job, jury. Though. Mm-hmm. Y'all all get a pat on the back if y'all weren't dead right now. Mm-hmm. So the Times correspondent reported on March the 20th. After conviction, the wretched woman exhibited strong emotion, but this gave place in a few hours to her habitual cold reserve demeanor. And while she harbors a strong conviction that the royal clemency will be extended towards her, she staunchly asserts her innocence of the crime that she has been convicted of. I bet she was an asshole in prison. She probably thought she was better than everybody else and everybody hated her. She didn't think she belonged there. I'm too good for this. I would never right? murder she children seri- She or seriously my thought she was going to get off. So several petitions were presented at the Home Secretary, but to no avail. Mary Ann Cotton was hanged at the age of 41 Ooh. at Durham County Gal on March 24th, 1873 by William Calcraft, <laughs> a notoriously clumsy hangman. Oh, gosh. Woo-hoo. 
Oh, Quit drinking yeah. before you go and pull the thing. <laughs> yeah. The trapdoor was not positioned high enough to break her neck, forcing oh the executioner to press down on her shoulders. Oh my god! Three minutes later, she died by strangulation. What if you would and have I like, could sit here and pause for three minutes for you to actually see how long that would be? That's shit. a long time. All you have to do is try to do a plank for 30 seconds and you realize how long three minutes is. Yeah. What Out if, of Marianne's 13 children, only two survived her. Margaret Edith, who was born in 1873, and her son George from her marriage to James Robinson. Okay. What? So, oh my God, here we go. Buckle up, guys. I keep picturing her hanging from the noose and the executioner, like, jumping on and bear-hugging her. Oh, my God. Just, like, hanging on to her. (laughs) Or sitting on her shoulders. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God. Can you imagine having to push somebody down and, like, try to snap their neck? Oh, (gasps) That's a terrible job. Yeah. That's, oh. Mm -mm. So, even after all this... She never confessed to any of the deaths, and the number of actual victims is uncertain because so many of them died from, like, gastric or stomach or... Man, I really would love mm-hmm. to know what her body count is. I bet it's high. We'll never know. They believe that she killed more than 21 people. She was working at the hospital as a nurse, and they're already sick. Right. How many of those people died? We didn't even hear about that. So this is why some people claim that she was Britain's first female serial killer. And although other women had previously been hanged for poisoning multiple people, none have been as notorious as Marion Cotton. Mm-mm. They even had a nursery rhyme. If you, call, if you call it a nursery rhyme. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to hear this. sick to tell kids. Are you going to sing it to me? Yeah, this okay, is after cool. her hanging. Oh, good. Okay. I don't know the tune. Nah. So I'll just say it. Okay. Okay. Marianne Cotton, she's dead and she's rotten, lying in bed with her eyes wide open. Sing, sing, oh, what should I sing? Marianne Cotton, she's tied up with string. Where? Where? Up in the air, selling black puddings a penny a pair. Marianne Cotton, she's dead and forgotten, lying in bed with her bones all rotten. Sing, sing, what can I sing? Marianne Cotton, tied up with string. Wow. I hope a child didn't come up with this. That's horrible. It, I don't it, know. Like, how do you... I'm, I'm a very talented poet. I'm going to make a song about a dead woman that poisoned people. Yeah. And I'm going to teach it to children. Yeah. You know... A lot of nursery rhymes are based on, like, horrible events. Yes. Uh, another one is The Muffin Man. Oh, I don't know about that one. I'm tell gonna me about t- that I'm going to tell that podcast. Even though this is bitches who are unwell, we could really use a little side. Yeah. I would side love. Track I've never heard The, the Muffin, Muffin Man. Man. Yeah. I know um, London Bridge is Falling Down is based off of one. Mm-hmm. And uh, the A Tisket, A Tasket, mm-hmm. A Green and Yellow Basket, that's based on the Black Plague. Mm-hmm. But, is it um, also Ring Around oh, the yes. Rosie? Yeah, nursery rhymes are sick, dude. <laughs> I cannot believe I sang some of this stuff to my kids. I know, because it's like called a nursery rhyme. Oh so I guess God. you feel compelled to sing it to your child because it's a nursery rhyme. But most of them have... Horrific backgrounds. Seeing this to my child to soothe them, and I'm talking about murdering people. Yeah, the Muffin Man was a murderer. Oh, God. Yes, I think I'm going to do that Just one. Just crushed my childhood. 
Let me know if you want me to do the Muffin Man, everybody. I do. And if there's any other stories that you want us to do, message us on YouTube. Leave it in the IMs. Yes. In the DMs. Slip into our DMs. I'm sliding right in. Slide right in. (laughs) You're safe. Yeah, we'll see if we can hook you up. And uh, the first person that gives us any kind of shout out or anything on our DMs. Or like a five-star review on whichever podcast (laughs) platform you listen to us on. We will be mentioning you. Yes. We should send them our first shirt. Yes, like, we should. Yes. We'll we, send you some merch. The first person that rates and reviews us, five stars. Amen. Hallelujah. And our kids don't count. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, boys. Even though my youngest is going to shout us out on his YouTube channel because he's more famous. He's more famous than us at this point. <laughs> Thank you, nine-year-old. <laughs> Go ahead, Dex. We'll be sponsoring him. We'll be his first sponsor. Oh, my God. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was... Um, yeah, that was a lot. And it really was two things. Like, that's crazy. The lozenge. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, this is a good one. I've never heard of this one before. Thanks. I listen to a lot of podcasts and YouTubes, and I've never heard of her. Yeah, she was a biatch. We're not going over Thanksgiving dinner at your house, baby. Never. Mm-mm. No, you're never going to get it. Never ever gonna get it. Oh my love. <laughs> okay, I'm all right, start. all right, that's enough. All right, so we hope you enjoyed the podcast, <laughs> and we hope you join us on the next episode when we discuss bitches who are unwell. unwell. Bye. Bye.